And open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. This last uh, Wednesday, I was invited to the Evergreen Christian School for Pastor's Day by Hannah Harmon, where, if you notice in the background, she goes to not just any old kindergarten, but to a Spanish immersion kindergarten. So the teacher speaks nothing but Spanish, all Spanish all the time. The only English I heard was the names of the children. I hear that sprinkled in as she was talking to the children, or you know, teaching them. And one boy's name I heard quite a bit. with a few push-downs, because either he didn't understand or he didn't want to obey whatever the teacher was saying, or both. God, in his word, has spoken clearly, and he's told us what the church is supposed to be. Some people don't want to listen to his plan. They think they have a better plan but the instruction is clear, and our responsibility is to read it and to know it and then to live it out. And let's do that at the, in Acts chapter 2. We've read various parts of this chapter every week as we've done this study, but today we want to uh, read verses 40 through 47. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted the crowd of thousands of people who were listening to him, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as any has need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the end, the conclusion, the, uh, the reflection, if you will, on what happened at the end of the first sermon in the Christian era. The Christian era began on this day, the day of Pentecost, or 50 days approximately after the resurrection of Christ, the, the death, burial, and resurrection. And throughout this chapter, and especially from these verses, we've learned uh, a number of things, beginning with this, the church is to be a curiosity. God wants to do things in and through the church to get people's attention so that they will listen to the gospel. On the first day, it was a miracle of speaking in tongues so that many people could understand in their own language. And today, there are other miracles that God is doing, and we'll look at that in just a minute. The church is to be a curiosity to draw people to Christ. Number two, the church is to be an incubator. That is a warm and inviting group of people so that as we interact with those who don't know the Lord, they feel an opportunity to know the Lord. The church is to be a hospital. We're not to reject anybody for their condition, uh, no matter whether their life looks really good or looks really bad, it should have no bearing on our acceptance of people and our ministry to people. Many years ago, as people studied church growth and as they made plans to plant churches, one article I read observed this, everyone wants to plant a church among young, upwardly mobile adults. But very few people want to go to places where they aren't young and they aren't upwardly mobile, perhaps where there are great difficulties to plant a church. Sometimes we can have the same attitude about who walks in the door. Somebody walks in and we think, oh, they'd make a great Christian. 
or they'd make a great addition to the church. Whereas Jesus said, I didn't come for those people who think they've got their life together. I came for those who are really struggling. See, the Pharisees of his day really thought they had it all going on spiritually. And they essentially criticized Jesus for reaching out to the woman at the well and the the prostitute and the tax collector and the guy dying on the cross next to him. Do you know if it had been a a Pharisee dying in Jesus' place, he would have looked at that guy and say, sorry, bud, you had your chance. We can't be that way. We can't reject anybody because of their condition. We have to love everyone. The church is to be a seminary. That is, it's to be a place where we teach God's word so that people can know his truth and be liberated by his truth and come to know the great life that Christ has for them. The church is to be a temple. It's to be a place of worship as we did today. And uh, we did it through music. We did it through prayer. We did it through the scripture. Most of all, we do it through our inner man focusing on God while we are singing or while we are working or while we are doing anything else. The church is to be a temple. Number six, the church is to be a family. We looked at this last week. We are to have a family kind of commitment so that we don't give up on people. We keep reaching out. We keep drawing people in. We care for people as far as we possibly can. And today, number seven and the last in this series is this. The church is to be the voice of God. The church is to be the voice of God. And for those of you that perhaps weren't here in past weeks, you can go back on our website and hear the other sermons. But I want to emphasize this one truth that we've talked about before. The church is not the building. The church is us. So whether we're in this building or out of the building, we are still the church. And that's, I'm not just talking about when we're gathered. I'm talking about us as the body of Christ. The church is to be the voice of God. Look at chapter 2 here of Acts and verse 14. I want to pick out just a couple of things that Peter said in his sermon. And as we read in verse 40, this is just the summary, the cliff notes of his sermon. It's not the whole thing. But a couple of things that Peter said. Look at verse 14. When Peter started his sermon, it was after this miracle of the speaking in tongues and everybody heard God's word in their own language. And Peter stood up and raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. That's an Old Testament book. We call it one of the minor prophets because it's a small book. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, and on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now drop down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or witnessed by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know him, being delivered by the purpose and foreknowledge of God, and so on. Then drop down to verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, him foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, This Jesus God has raised up of whom we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? God caused 
a unique set of events, the speaking in other languages, and he gave his people a message to be shared for those who would be interested and would come to find out what was happening. God gave his people something to say, and then he worked through what they said. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is also the passage that I've encouraged you in the notes where it says for application. I've encouraged you to meditate on this passage. And so we're going to turn to it and read it, and I, I hope you will take note of it because it talks of one of the most awesome and ominous truths in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has believed in Christ as his Savior, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or holding against them their trespasses and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look at verse 20 again, please. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 20 is one of the most awesome and ominous truths that began to be practiced on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And that truth is this, God uses believers to accomplish his work. God uses believers to accomplish his work. In the Old Testament, God had a variety of ways to get his work done, usually through special men called priests and prophets. If he had a message to give out, he gave it to one of them, and they went and told people. If there was worship to be done, the priest did that work. When Jesus was on earth, he carried God's message. He spoke God's word. He said that many times. In fact, that got him in trouble when he said, I'm speaking for my father, and I'm only speaking what he told me. Now, it's you and me that speaks for God. We are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. Somehow I think this is a truth that we know, and we know we know it. <laughs> we don't disagree with it. But I'm not sure if we've stopped to take it quite as fully as God would have us to. God speaks through us. God works through believers. He doesn't shout out of heaven himself. He doesn't send angels to speak his word. There are no prophets or apostles who are specially gifted to do miracles and get people's attention. I know there are people who call themselves prophets and apostles. And I know they would try to convince you they're doing some miracles, but they are not doing the kind of thing God's prophets and God's apostles did. There were one set of apostles, and they were there to initiate God's ministry, to receive the word and write it down, and then they went home to be with God. And now God speaks through his word through us. God uses ordinary believers like you and me. Now I know that, that anybody in the world, anybody in America can, 
probably walk into any bookstore. I don't know if they have sell Bibles in grocery stores where they sell magazines, but you can go online. I know the Bible is freely available to people. I know that. But I also know it took people to make that happen. And ultimately, it takes some people to take God's truth, some people who have already believed in Christ and explain it to those who haven't believed in Christ. And God says, you're the people. Every one of you and me. We are the people. As a boy in uh, physical education class, PE, I don't know if they still call it PE class. They still call it that? Yeah. There was a common way to choose teams. I don't know if they still do this. I suspect they may not. When we played organized games like baseball or basketball or something like that in PE class, the teacher would pick the two most athletic boys and make them the captains of the teams, and then they would pick teams. Still do that? I'm shocked that they still do that because it's so damaging to people's self-esteem. Because <laughs> you know there's always somebody picked first and somebody picked not first. And I'll give you a clue which one I was. But my self-esteem is still intact because I was usually second to last. <laughs> there was always somebody in worse shape than me, somebody less athletic. But you know what, Christian? God chose me first. God chose me first. And he chose all of us first. Every single one of us is called to carry his truth. Every single one of us is called to speak for him, to do his work. He is not going to come down and do it until the end of time when he wraps things up. And between now and then, he's called us. He's called us to do his work. He's called us to be his voice. The word used here in, in 2 Corinthians 5 is an ambassador. And, and if you understand government, ambassadors don't say what they think, at least they're not supposed to. They say what the, the person they represent. In this day, it would have been the king. In our day, it's uh, the head of government, whatever he might be called. God wants us to be his voice. What does that mean for us today? What is it that God wants us to? How does God want us to speak for him? Well, first and foremost, God wants us to demonstrate what is possible. He wants us to demonstrate what is possible. In Acts chapter 2, God caused a miracle in the disciples so that they spoke. They'd never spoken these various languages, and there were at least 16 languages represented and, and all the people heard the words of God in their own language, and it got everybody's attention. God isn't doing that kind of miracle today. He's doing something far greater. He's changing lives. Have you ever taken note of this little verse, these words of Jesus? He said to his disciples, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Jesus said the people who would believe in him would do greater works than him. Now think with me for a minute about the apostles and what we know of their ministry. We don't know about all of their ministry. But did any apostle go into town and heal every single ill person? We don't read about that. Did any apostle ever give sight to the blind? Well, we're not sure. He, he made some people stand up. I mean, there were some healings. There was, some, there was uh, at least one bringing a guy back from the dead. The sight to the blind was something that was limited to the Messiah. Did any apostle change the weather? Did any apostle feed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish? See, we say, well, Jesus said they're going to do greater miracles. 
then we would expect to read in the book of Acts that they just walked around through Israel like he did and just did these miracles, 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 because it's going to be greater than what he did. When Jesus left the planet, as best we can understand from Scripture, there were 120 real disciples. You ever thought about that? We read many times of people stopping their their following of Christ. 120 left. How many were born again when Peter preached the first sermon of the Christian era in Acts chapter 2? 3,000. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not diminishing especially the saving work of Christ. If, if I would say, what's the, what's the greatest work that Christ ever did is when he died on the cross and paid for all of the sin of the world so that if anyone would believe in him, they can be saved. There, without a doubt, there's nothing ever been done greater than that except, uh, well, in terms of its impact, nothing greater. I mean, God created the world. But no human being has ever come anywhere close to that in any ministry. But I think what Jesus was saying is this. In terms of ministry to people, the spiritual transformation that happens in salvation is greater than the physical miracles he did while on earth. All of the people that received a physical healing or even Lazarus who was brought back from the dead, he died again. Those people that got healed from their illnesses, they got sick again. People whose loved ones were brought back to life lost them again. Jesus said, you're going to do something greater. And I think that greater thing is the changed life that salvation in Christ brings to us. And that is the miracle that God wants to use to speak to the world around you. Have you ever heard this phrase or some variation of it? Your actions speak so loud that I can't hear what you're saying. There's a parallel to this in the Christian life, not talking about unbelievers here, but in the Christian life, the parallel is this. Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. That's talking about the elders in the church. He's saying the reason you should follow the lead of the elders is is because you've examined their life and you say they live a good life. They live a good life based on God's truth. There's a parallel. I mean, how can I stand up here and preach God's truth if I'm living wickedly? I'm a terrible advertisement for the truth if that's the case. And the same thing is true of all of us in regard to the unsaved world. You need to believe in Jesus. Oh, really? Let me look at your life. Has he made any changes in your life? Not so much. No. I got called by somebody I never knew, never knew before on the telephone down in Tukwila. They said, my grandson's in jail, in the King County Jail. Would you go down there and talk to him? Oh, boy. They said, his cellmate has witnessed to him, and he's come to know the Lord. I thought, man, that is upside down. Okay? I mean, you're telling me that I need the Lord like you have the Lord? Brother, we're in here together. What's the deal? Sure enough, I went and visited him, and this guy hounded him and hounded him and hounded him till he went to the chapel service, and somehow in the process of going to the chapel and hearing the gospel preached, he came to the Lord. I guess I have to believe there was something about this guy's life that witnessed to this guy's life, and certainly something about those people in chapel. Does your life speak for God. I mean, if, if Jesus was here, we would see his life as unique. And, and, and there, would, there was a reason that people were interested in him. And he says to us, I want you to speak for me. Our life, our work, needs to show the difference that Christ makes. 
Our life needs to be of such a kind that an unbeliever would want to have one like it. Wow. I'm not that, I'm not that fond of that kind of statement. This week I went to the dentist for the fourth time in five weeks. I'd rather have knee surgery. I'd rather have a whole knee replacement than go to the dentist four times in five weeks. One of my crowns came off, and not the kind that I'm going to have in heaven. Uh, when I went to China, thankfully it didn't really hurt, but it was kind of a problem there. So I got back, my wife had made an appointment, go to the dentist, and they said, oh, we'll, we'll glue that on, but they said, in, in examining it, they said, really, part of the reason this has come off now is it doesn't fit right and you need to get a new crown. Okay, okay, your kids need to go to college, I get it. And <laughs> my kids already went to college, now it's my turn to put your kids through college, okay. <laughs> How much will my insurance pay? Just about half, that's what I figured. Okay, but... You know, uh, she's probably right about that. So they, they you know, they said, uh, we're just going to glue your old one back on now, and then uh, you come in, and we'll, we'll get this all fixed up, take a mold and all that business. Well, the old one came off, so I came back, and they glued it on with bigger glue. So then when I came in to get it prepped for the crown and, you know, scoped out for the crown, then they had to grind off the old one. Yeah. And it was brutal. And, and then, so I come back, and they got the crown, and they go to put the crown on. It doesn't fit right. It's loosey-goosey, and that, that's no good. That's no good. Well, that was after we'd already, you know. So, so they put the old one. They made another fake one. They glued them on. And they made another temporary and glued it on. And when I came back, then they had to grind it off again. <laughs> And you know what? I wasn't thinking about sharing Jesus with the dentist. <laughs> I wasn't even, uh, honestly, until I was studying for this sermon this week, I didn't even think about, what do I think when I go to the dentist? What do I think about? Do I pray for the dentist, for the assistants, whatever? The person that cleans my teeth is a strong Christian, and we always talk about you know, every, every six months we, we talk about uh, their life and our life and, you know, follow each other on Facebook, and that's wonderful. But do I even think about other people in that setting? No, I'm just thinking about myself. Does Jesus show when you're getting that temporary ground off for the third time? Wow. See, I'm convinced that a big part of our speaking for Christ is in our everyday life. When people see us around our family, does Jesus show? When they see us at work, does Jesus show? Is there anything in our life where they'd look and say, yeah, man, I, I, I need that kind of life. Wow, that's, I, I believe more than anything, that's what Jesus calls us to, uh, in, in, to think that way as we go about our life. God wants us to demonstrate what is possible. It is possible to smile while the Novocaine makes your face droop. But I got some work to do there. Number two, what is, how does God want us to speak for him? God wants us to pray for the unsaved. God wants us to pray for the unsaved. Um, when Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy... God used that kind of a form to help to teach us about the church. He said, Timothy, number one thing I need you to work on is God's truth, the right doctrine, because wrong doctrine leads people to hell, wrong doctrine enslaves people, so right doctrine is what you've got to work on. The number two thing, the number two thing he said I want you to work on is this. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you ask the question, why does God, why should we pray for the unsaved? The answer is God wants them to be saved and somehow in God's mind, our prayer and their salvation is connected. I understand the sovereignty of God. I understand all of those theological truths, but none of that changes the fact that God said, pray for the unsaved. Pray for the unsaved. My question to you today is this, do you have a prayer list with the names of unsaved people on it? And do you have some, some headings like this, church friends, the Awana kids, the youth group, the neighbors? You may or may not know the names of all the kids that come to our youth group. There's no way you could know the names of all the kids that come to our Awana club. You know, on the average year, there's, there's what, help me out here, 70 or 100 distinct kids who come. They don't all come at one time. But you could just pray for the Awana Club and the kids who don't know the Lord because there are always some of those. You know, when I talk to people about their time in the Word and in prayer, m most people will say, well, I pray all day long. Amen, that's wonderful. I pray all day long. When I go to the dentist, but I'm not praying for the dentist. I'm praying for myself. Or when I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing, I'm naturally concerned about myself, and it's not selfish to pray about your concerns. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever come up with the idea, oh, God doesn't want to hear about my problems. Oh, yes, he does. But perhaps we could say it's selfish if your prayer list doesn't get to the unsaved. You know, maybe you could make some, some, some sort of rules for yourself. I like to use that term. You know, you have a plan, and the plan would be, every day as I drive up to my workplace, I'm going to say, God, help me to remember at that moment to pray for the people I work with. Or... Like me, when I'm, when I'm working out, and I, I've been off for a couple of weeks, got back to it again uh, yesterday, and uh, I see somebody walk through, I'll say, Lord, help that person to know you. Now, believe me, I, I know this isn't, this isn't the height of prayer life, but I'm talking, where do you start? Start with whoever is in your life. Um, you know, there are people on, you know, I have the neighbors on my prayer list. I have all these things on my prayer list, maybe not those names, but, uh, but we need to be praying for those who don't know the Lord. Do you know that I wouldn't remember to pray for you if your names weren't on my prayer list, unless you had specifically said something to me? You know, when I see you here, I think, oh yeah, there's all these people, but if I just sat down like this and went, who should I pray for? Well, you know, my family might come to mind or maybe somebody here who's got a real difficulty, but I've written all your names on the prayer list so I can pray for all of you every week and we need to be doing that with unsaved people. Why is prayer so vital in reaching people for Christ? Number one, only God can cause people to seek him. Do you understand this truth that Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? Do you know why people seek the Lord? They seek the Lord because God seeks them first. See, when they're, when they're casting about going, you know, I, I gotta find something about this spiritual thing. You know, the cover of the AARP magazine, which, you know, magically appears in your box when you turn 50, whether you ask for it or not. And it's been a couple of years since I was 50. The front cover is Oprah's Greatest Quest, Spirituality. I don't know if she's really seeking the Lord or not, but if she is, you know why that'll be whenever that happens? Because God is on the other end of the rope going, come on, Oprah. Come on, Oprah. If she's ever going to truly know the Lord, I don't know whether she does or not, but it does not appear she does, it will be because we say, God, would you please send a missionary to her life? You know, I don't live in Chicago. Would you please send somebody there to her? Would you please awaken her? Would you please start drawing her to yourself? 
The first prayer that we need to pray for the unsaved is to say, God, would you cause these, you know, these people that I know here, these people that I know there, they're not interested in you. And it's true, they're not interested. But they will get interested if God reaches down and goes, hello. He has a variety of ways to do that, you know. Sometimes he does it through very tragic circumstances. Sometimes he does it through maybe things that aren't quite so tragic. Nobody will come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Number two, only God can cause people to change their mind about him. Only God can cause people to change their mind. You see, we are to carry the message, but even if we get that message spoken to somebody, only God can change a person's mind. I can't do it. No matter how, how eloquent I might think I am, I cannot change a person's mind. Timothy says, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, talking about a pastor. The pastor must not be a quarreler, but must be gentle, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in, in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. The word repentance means to change and to go in the opposite direction. In salvation, that happens first of all in your thinking. The average unbeliever thinks, I'm okay, I don't need a savior. The average unbeliever thinks Jesus was, you know, he was a, a, a God man. Of, he was a, a guy who talked about God and he lived on the earth. But they don't think he was the God man. They don't think he died in their place. They don't think they are a sinner on their way to hell without him. All of those thoughts have to change. And it is God who will take the truth we share and change people's minds through that. and they change their minds, they can come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Wow. Number three, only God can initiate the work of salvation. Only God can do that. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is Paul's personal testimony of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus might show all patience. The apostle Paul obtained mercy from God. God is the one who is merciful and is gracious and helps people to understand the truth. God tells us to pray because only he can save a soul. We must do our part, and we're still coming to that part about telling the truth, we must do our part of living the example and speaking the truth, but ultimately the work is of him. Now on October 31st of this year, we're going to do a big event out in our parking lot, the goal of which is to get better connected to our community, okay? There are gospel tracts that will be passed out, and a gospel tract, if you don't know, is a little piece of literature that says this is, this is who Jesus is, and this is who you are, and this is what you need to know if you want to be a believer, and so on. We'll pass those things out. There will be some opportunity to talk to people. Will there be any spiritual fruit from that event? The number one thing that we need to do to get spiritual fruit from that event is to pray. It's not the only thing, but that's where it starts. To pray for those who don't know the Lord. God wants us to pray because only he can save a soul. And then God not only wants us to pray for the unsaved, God wants us to reach out to the unsaved. He wants us to reach out. It's our responsibility to go to them, not their responsibility to come to us. Uh, obviously, th this church has been on this uh, corner for since, uh, I can't do the math, so I'll say since 1930. No, this building's been here since 1935. I think it's been on this corner since before the turn of the century. Church is 130 years old. 
It existed somewhere else for a couple of years, then came here and they built a building. The building burned down in 1935, and this building that we are uh, standing and sitting in uh, was built then and been rebuilt several times since then. Hey, all the people, in, I mean, everybody who goes to high school drives by this street just about, right? Why don't they come flocking in? Because we're supposed to go to them. That's, the, that's one of the real hard parts here for us. We are supposed to go to them. Jesus illustrated this with this story that you're familiar of. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was traveling, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, departing, departed, and left him half dead. Now by chance... By the providence of God, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, a Levite would have been a person who was not a priest, but he was a person who worked in the temple. He, was, uh, he would be like a deacon, and the priest would be like the elder, I guess you'd say. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus really winds up these people with this story in a couple of ways, but the most important one is this. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't like each other at all. And yet it was only the Samaritan who would say, look at this poor fellow in the ditch. I must help him. Hmm. A couple of weeks ago, we had a guest speaker named Claire Jewell who used the phrase crossing over. So I'd modify my statement this way. It's our responsibility to cross over to them, not their responsibility to come to us. Do you know where that starts? I've got the oddest place for you to start crossing over to unbelievers. Where do you think I would say that starts? What? Your family? Neighbors? The church. Who's that smart lady right there? Must be my mother. Do you know? I think it would be accurate to say that every Sunday probably in every evangelical church, there are always unsaved people in church. See, we all look around, and especially when we're all wearing name tags, we're all kind of on equal ground. Oh, look at all these fine Christian people. I hope so. I don't think so. Now, how do you find out if somebody knows the Lord? You say to them, after church, I'm going to find out which ones of you are really bold now. Say, hey, Dave, good to know you. When did you come to know the Lord? Ooh, that's really personal, isn't it? We should never assume that anybody knows the Lord until at least we've heard the words out of their own mouth at least that point, maybe we should be looking for the changed life also, but, but at least we should want for people to, to say the truth of God and, and to claim to know the Lord. We can't assume that everyone who goes to church is a child of God. A couple of weeks ago, Raul and Stephanie invited some people over to their house and and uh, we were, Sue and I were among them, and uh, they wanted to, Raul wanted to have something fun for the guys. So he made a potato gun. Now that's a great big thing made out of PVC, and you use hairspray or lighter fluid or whatever, and you make this combustion chamber, and you shoot potatoes out of this thing. And you can go online and, and see how to do it. And I said, you know, when I was in college, we didn't make potato guns. We made tennis ball cannons. <laughs> and we were poor, so it couldn't be made out of anything you had to buy. And you take about, uh, I don't know how many, ten how many, how many uh, pop cans that is, but about 
about that many pop cans, and I suspect back in the day they were a little stouter than the ones we have today. Cut the tops and bottoms, and you put them together and duct tape them together. Every college student has duct tape, of course. And then the bottom one, you make a little combustion chamber a certain way, and you squirt a little lighter fluid and shake it up to atomize it, and, and you hold it like this with a tennis ball, and the guy behind you lights it, and poosh! And it'll shoot a tennis ball like nobody's business. And I know, because I was present when they were shooting them one time. And I was up on an elevated part of the campus having a talk with my friend. Who, hey, blah, 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 smack! <laughs> the guys down there were shooting the tennis ball cannon. And they hit me square on, right in the jaw, you know. And, and I kind of looked like, what in the world? And they said, we just assumed you saw it coming. I saw it coming. I just sat there, right? Like I'm going to be a real man. What? Don't you know me better than that? They assumed. They assumed they knew what was going on. Friends, it's not judgmental to not assume somebody knows the Lord until you hear that they know the Lord. It's compassionate. We need to know, we need to carry God's word, starting right here. If this isn't a safe place to talk about your relationship to the Lord, if this isn't a safe place to do that, then there isn't a safe place. And if we're not going to do about it, in a, if we're not going to talk about the Lord in a safe place, we'll never talk about the Lord in the, uh, the average places in our world. <sighs> God wants us to demonstrate what's possible, to pray for the unsaved, to reach out to the unsaved, and he wants us to deliver his good news. There's a sense in which this last step is the, mm, the, the target, the goal, the, the, the consummation of the rest of the process. God wants us to deliver his good news, and that's, it's, it's tucked in throughout the New Testament and certainly the, the truth of the gospel is based on the events in, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. But I would ask you this question today. If somebody walked up to you right now and said, how can I get to heaven? Could you open your Bible and tell them the truths they need to know and lead them to express their faith in God? When I was in college, we had a variety of people come to some of our theology classes and tell their perspective on certain doctrines. We had a Catholic priest come in, and he was a younger man. This was back in the late 70s, and he's sharing his perspective on doctrine. And uh, we had some ex-Catholics in the church, and they were very in the in the in the class, and they were very excited to to. Uh, tell this person the truth, and so we, we kept nudging up around the truth of salvation, and finally somebody said, if I'm a guy in your church and I want to know how do I get to heaven when I die, what are you going to say? And his answer, that's a really hard question. And we pressed on, and it was a really hard question for him. Because somehow in his mind, that religion isn't oriented in that direction. Friends, do you want to mark yourself as a strong believer? In other words, if you were to stop and take stock of yourself and say, what do I want to be known as, or what kind of a believer, what quality of a believer I don't know if you'd say, well, I'm happy just to be an immature baby in Christ. But if you would say anything other than that, say, well, I, I want to be known as a guy who's walking with the Lord. Great. Can you lead somebody to Christ? Can you open your Bible and go, you know, start at John 3.16 or go down the Romans road or go to 1 Corinthians 15 or wherever, you know, all kinds of places you can start. Could you just start and say, here's what God says, just real simply, and here's what you need to know. I know that people have lots of questions. I know sometimes they sound like they get real complicated. That's up to God, and that's up to the other person who's trying to be a skeptic. But we ought to know God's simple truth, and we ought to share it with people. 
And we ought to take to heart Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians 5 earlier in the chapter. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, what's interesting about the Apostle Paul and the way that God included pieces of his, of his personal perspective on living out Christianity is that he's the one who said God is sovereign and God has chosen people to salvation. And, and, and at the same time, he's saying, knowing the terror of the Lord, we've got to persuade men. And so somehow, somehow, we have got to say, God, help me not to give up easy. Help me to get in there and try with people, try to build, try to show them my life so that I can have a platform to share the truth of Christ. Pray for them so that God will open the door. I'm not a great evangelist. I'm not the guy. You know, a couple nights ago, saw some people out on the street in Bellingham with big signs, uh, you know, something like, Christ died for your sins and so on. That's wonderful. I'm not against that. God wants us to get next to people. Frankly, it would be easier to go out there on the street and hold up those signs and go home and say, I stood up for the Lord today. It's a little tougher to get next to people around us. Years ago, when I was a volunteer firefighter, sometime we were at church doing something. It wasn't during a church service or anything like that. And, and I got a page, you know, for a fire call or an EMS call or whatever it was. And so I went running out the door and headed off to this call. And one of the people that was there turned to my wife and said, I'm sure glad he likes to do that because I don't want anything to do with that at all. And you know, that's okay when it comes to the emergency services. Some, God has made some people able to do that sort of thing, and other people can't. But it's not okay to have that attitude about parts of the church ministry, including sharing the gospel. We can't say, well, you know, I'm so glad those missionaries go over there and share the gospel because I, that's not for me at all. It might not be for you in, in Timbuktu, but it is for you here. It is for you here. We need to accept God's call. If we want to say we're a, a good church, we need to be a church that is sharing God's truth with people on October 31st and October 11th and October 12th and the 13th and the 14th as God gives us grace to do so. Heavenly Father, give us your word. Give us your encouragement to use your word and to share it with people around us. Father, I pray for any who might be here who haven't come to full faith in you. Help them. Lord, I know that it's you that has to open their eyes and their mind and their heart. Open that today let us share the gospel. Let us encourage them to you. Oh, Father, save some people through our church. We have a good church in many ways, Father, and we need to be better at this. I pray that you would do it for us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.